Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 155. In this episode of Garden DC, we chat with Sarah L. Hall, author of Sown in the Stars, all about planting by the signs. The plant profile is on Lotus, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Ellen Zakos of BackyardForager.com, who gives the last word on eating your weeds. This episode, we're joined by Sarah L. Hall. She is the author of Sown in the Stars, Planting by the Signs, and she is with Berea College in Kentucky. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Now, Sarah, I should give your full title. It's Associate Professor of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Yes, that's right. And let's talk a little bit first about the college, and then we'll talk about you and your background. So where is the college located? So Berea is um, just about 45 minutes south of Lexington, Kentucky. Um, So it's still in central Kentucky, but it's kind of right at the edge of uh, the Appalachian region and sort of... um, so essentially just east of Berea, uh, you start to get into the mountains and uh, coal fields of eastern Kentucky. Okay, great. And then about how far is that from the Virginia border? For those listeners who are not in the United States, they might be wondering where the Appalachians are and where that's located. Yeah, so uh, from Berea, I guess... Um, you know, over to like Breaks Interstate Park. That's about uh, three and a half to four hours from here. And that's right at the Virginia border. So, um, so yeah. And then the Appalachian Mountains run, I think from Georgia? Georgia all the way up into um, New York, actually. Um, So yeah, pretty, pretty large swath um, in the Eastern U.S. Great. So did you grow up in that region? Yeah, I am from, um, I'm actually from Madison County, Kentucky, the same um, county that Berea College is in, uh, just sort of on the other side of the county. So not, um, yeah, I'm from very close to where I was uh, lucky enough to get a job. And um, Berea has a really interesting and unique uh, history. We are a a work college. So all of the students have a labor position that they work and we're also tuition free. So, um, we are sort of the, the mission, um, of the colleges to provide an education for, um, folks from in the Appalachian region and beyond who have, um, strong academic promise, but, uh, not a lot of financial means. So all of our students are, um, under a certain economic income and, um, and also work during their time at Berea. And, um, we also were sort of the first interracial, um, college in the South, um, that, the college has had that kind of interesting and unique history with a mission to serve, um, especially the Appalachian region, but we have students from uh, well beyond as well. That's so interesting to hear. So let's talk a little bit about you and then we'll dive into your new book, Sown in the Stars. And we like to ask our guests here on the Garden DC podcast, were they born with chlorophyll in their veins or a green thumb? (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And um, I certainly was born and grew up with a connection to outside, um, to hiking, to the mountains. um, Yeah, and to exploring. So I would say the the sort of chlorophyll in my DNA, um, you know, was earliest in that form rather than specifically gardening. But um, I really started thinking more about gardening 
certainly as I was growing up, my my family um, out at my dad's mom's place, so my granny um, in Estill County, which is just one county east of Madison, and it's really um, getting into the, the rolling knobs region and into the mountains, uh, we always had a garden at her place that was kind of a family effort. Um, and so I certainly started helping out as I was younger, um, especially when it came to harvest time and, um, you know, breaking the mounds of beans that had been harvested uh, and putting those up and things like that. So, so yeah, that's um, a little bit about the chlorophyll in my bones, as you said, I like that, that phrase. And so can you describe a little bit about the growing conditions there and the soil itself? Sure. Um, so we are in um, zone 6B or C. I think they actually, a few years ago when the USDA redid things, I think we might have changed to 6C, but we um, essentially have kind of the you know, our average um, frost-free dates are like April 15th to October 15th, um, or maybe 20th anyway. That's <laughs> somewhere around there, pretty close. And our soils are, you know, it's quite variable in our region, depending on the topography and um, exactly where you are in the landscape. But central Kentucky is an extremely fertile region, the, the sort of bluegrass region. That's where, you know, we have lots of um, thoroughbred horse farms and bourbon, of course, comes from that region. Um, and so sort of the rich soils, as well as the limestone that underlay, underlays everything really um, keeps the soil pH really nice and um, yeah, helps helps buffer uh, the pH and uh, be able to grow things really, really excellent. As you get sort of a little bit east, the a lot of people historically farmed in the floodplains um, where you had more fertile um, soil than you know in the more weathered uh, areas uphill. So uh, anyway, I don't know if that's exactly what you meant. No, that's perfect. We have a, a lot of listeners who are hardcore plant nerds and garden geeks, so that's perfect. Yeah, I just wondered how much uh, versus clay versus rocky it is throughout that region. Yeah, it really depends on where where in the landscape you are. So, um, you know, our native forest soils, like um, especially as you get uh, a little further east into the Appalachian region, um, those up on the ridgetops tend to be very um, sandy, rocky, and quite acidic, um, you know, where we have like pine forests and that sort of thing. And if you're someone trying to garden um, and, you know, you're, you happen to be located on somewhere where those, those are the soils, it's quite challenging. Um, but, you know, if you get down on the slope a little bit um, or get into some of those floodplain areas, um, you know, it's it certainly is a little easier to do. But, um, you know, here here where I am, I'm, I'm at my house right now, so I'm looking out my window at my garden. And, um, yeah, we have a pretty nice... Um, you know, some nice loam soils, but there is also definitely a, a clay component that comes in, um, you know, sort of depending where on the landscape you are. So, um, yeah, those things, you just sort of are aware of that and, um, you know, work with it through what you plant or what you amend with and all that kind of stuff. And since you mentioned looking out the window at your garden, what are you seeing and what are you growing right now? So I've got um, in some, I have some raised beds that are um, kind of directly in front of my house and I've got um, some tomatillos that are just going nutso right now. I'm just starting to be able to harvest some of them, but um, they have just really gone crazy this year. Um, I just harvested some purple potatoes out of like some half bourbon barrels uh, that are easily found around central Kentucky. Um so I harvested those and got some sweet potato slips in, even though it's kind of late for that. Um, I'm hoping I'll be able to get at least some small sweet potatoes out of those. Um, and then out in my main garden area, I've got um, some peppers growing, a whole bunch of tomatoes. I always grow lots of tomatoes. Um, and I've got some Kennebec potatoes and some winter squash, some half runner beans, uh, some pumpkins, 
I'm probably missing a couple things, but that's most of it. Maybe some herbs as well. Yeah, I've got some, um, my cilantro has all gone to seed. Um, mm-hmm. and then I've got some basil on the back porch and kind of a little, um, yeah, little herb, herb garden, container garden on the back porch. Wonderful. So let's turn now to your book, Sown in Stars, which I must say, I have it in my hand right now. It's a handsome book. It's a beautifully photographed and done and I just love the layout as well so congratulations on that it just came out this past April yes thank you yeah I'm really I'm pleased very much with the layout that the University Press of Kentucky um, came out with it you know for it and um, yeah Meg Wilson's photos are just so really wonderfully done um, and really complement it in a huge way mm-hmm and so the book is really interesting uh, in that it talks about planting by the signs, but it's not just a how-to book. It's not a like list of the signs and then how to do them. You went around and interviewed uh, a bunch of gardeners in the Appalachian area to find out those old stories and traditions. So it's kind of almost like a storybook and then gets into the how-to. Yeah, yeah, that as I was thinking about um, what I wanted to do for my sabbatical during the uh, 2018 and 2019 school year, um, the the interviews really were were the main central core piece of what I knew I wanted to do. Um, and so I tried to center those, you know, as much as I could in the book. I mean, um, even while I was going around interviewing people, it still felt a little bit... Um, I guess, intimidating or overwhelming to try to think about um, putting together a book. Um, but I knew that I wanted to capture the voices. Um, and those are all, all of the interviews are available on the uh, College Archives website. So people can search for just Berea College Archives Planting by the Signs and they can find um, there's a little over 18 hours there of all the interviews that are available to listen to online. And um, at the very least, I knew that I wanted to do that and sort of capture that knowledge, given that a lot of people were getting older that do this. Um, and And then the book I mean, I knew that I wanted to write a book from the beginning, but um, again, sort of having never done something like that, it seemed uh, like maybe it was overly ambitious. But as I did the interviews, I started, um, you know, just trying to write those uh, those sort of biographical sketches that are in that followers chapter um, to try to try to you know, while while the moment was fresh of, of meeting with each of those people to try to give um, a bit of the sense of who they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's so wonderful that you have those recordings available to the public and that you have a little more than 20 people interviewed in here and, as you said, captured while they're still living. And because of COVID or between that period of research and actually publishing the book, you've lost a few of those subjects. Yeah, actually, um, and so I list four in the front in an author's note, but there was a, uh, there's been an additional one who passed away um, last September that I didn't know about, unfortunately, to get in there. So yeah, five, five of the people that I interviewed have, have since passed away. And in such a short time, which shows you how much we're losing and how fast we're losing some of that knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And I loved in the introduction where you talked about that a lot of the information you're gathering is from the women of Appalachia and that the men you interviewed even mentioned where they learned it is from their grandmother, their wife, their aunt. So I think it's very interesting that it's a tradition handed down from the women. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I also thought it was really interesting and, you know, I think there's a couple um, possibilities for kind of why that is, and and probably it's some combination of all of them. But um, you know, given the time period that many of the folks that I interviewed, um, you know, when they were learning how to do this, it certainly is true that there's been 
you know, a chunk of time in our history when uh, men were typically being drafted and going off to war or um, going to work in, in the coal mines or in factories and different, you know, industrial type jobs. And uh, women were largely the ones that were at home taking care of the children and, um, you know, feeding everybody and growing the garden and, and tending that in many cases. And so I think that that could be part of it. Um, but, you know, there may be other other reasons as well that women have sort of helped to hold that knowledge. Certainly globally, you know, women, many more of the people that are growing food in the world are women than men, right? So that certainly holds true for much, much of the world. But mm -hmm. Yeah. And so before we get too into it, we should probably define the practice of planting by the signs. Like, what are those signs? What are you... <laughs> what is the tradition? Right. Yeah. So, um, so in terms of what it is, I have kind of two answers. One is, um, if people plant by the signs, if they follow this, then what it means on a, on a real practical level is that they have an almanac or a calendar that they follow to help guide their gardening activities. Um, and most of the people that I interviewed, it's a, it's a calendar that um, essentially is based on the information that is in almanacs, but it's in a calendar form. And uh, one of the chapters of the books of the book is on uh, calendars and almanacs and sort of goes through and gives a little bit of a comparison of the different calendars that are available in almanacs and where they come from and um, all that sort of stuff. But um, that's kind of on the practical level. So there are um, on the calendars, for instance, there will be different symbols that represent the different moon signs. And they are looking at that and saying, okay, you know, today is a killing sign. So I'm not going to plant, you know, X crop, whatever it is that they're wanting to get in the ground. And they're looking to see when there's a favorable sign coming and then they will plant on those days. Um, so that's the practical level. The sort of deeper question then is what are those almanacs and calendars based on? What does it mean that the sign is Aries for these days or whatever? And and so that um, I cover in a chapter um, called The Basics that goes through. And essentially, um, most people are familiar with their sun sign, right? So they know that they were born, uh, you know, on X date. And that means that they are a Libra or a Taurus or whatever it is. Um, and essentially what that is um, or what it is based on, and it gets a little bit blurry because there's astrology and there there's astronomy, which is mm -hmm. actually where the, where things are in the sky. And while they're based on the same, um, you know, ideas and constellations, etc. Um, the actual calculations of those things differ some. So, uh, but sometimes they line up with one another. Anyway, that's a bit of an aside. But your sun sign is essentially what zodiac constellations was on the other side of the sun from the perspective of the earth when you were born. So we have a month in each of those 12, right? It's essentially evenly divided up, um, you know, if you picture it like as a pie, you've got um, even slices there for each of the 12 constellations. Um, that sort of astrology versus astronomy gets blurred there when you think about the fact that each of the constellations isn't exactly the same width, right? Some of them are narrower than others. And so technically, they probably shouldn't all be exactly even slices if you're looking at things from an astronomical perspective. Um, but anyway, that's, we'll just set that aside for a second. So your sun sign, um, you've got a month in each um, year in each of those 12 signs. The moon sign or what the planting by the signs is based on in these calendars and almanacs, it's actually from the perspective of the earth, it's what constellation is on the other side of the moon. Um, from the earth. That is the moon sign. And so that's what the almanacs and calendars are based on um, with, you know, essentially each of those occurring for two to two and a half days until you shift to the next one. Um, it gets a little bit um, 
confusing in some ways because in addition to the names of the constellations, which most of us are fairly familiar with, um, you know, things like Gemini, Aries, Taurus, Libra, Sagittarius, etc. Each of those has um, a body part name associated and um, most of the people who do this, who, who plant by the signs, or certainly the ones that I interviewed, refer to the signs by the body part names rather than the constellation names. Um, and so there's, there's that piece of it. And then there's also a symbol for each one of them. Um, and that's often what you will see on calendars rather than the name or the uh, the body part associated um, with that sign, you'll actually see the symbol. And so there's kind of three different uh, things that you're trying to um, to line up there in speaking the language of planting by the signs. Yeah, I can see how that those traditions might get confusing, and um, Gemini might be lungs or might be twins, depending on who's referring to it. Yeah, that tends to be twin. The, yeah, twin days is how um, people would refer to them, or you know, even more so, it was the arms um, mm-hmm. is is Gemini. So interesting. So these traditions are they coming down from Germanic astrology traditions? Where are they originating from? I will say that I didn't. I mean, I got into a little bit of the basics of. Um, you know, of the system of how these constellations got named, et cetera. Um, But I didn't necessarily get uh, into, uh, you know, a huge amount of depth about where all this is being done or what the roots of it are. I will say that, um, you know, this certainly is not an Appalachian only thing. So, uh, you know, sometimes people have asked that like, oh, well, is this only, and that's definitely not the case. This is a worldwide thing that is happening. Um, And in fact, one of the people that I interviewed, um, she actually um, learned about it when she was in Guatemala uh, from Mayan farmers. And so, yeah, I think that's what I can say about that other than um, there certainly are Germanic ties in terms of uh, the biodynamic almanac and calendar. Um, there's a woman, Mariah Thune, who did a huge amount of research that went into establishing um, that calendar and almanac system. And that one is actually, um, not only is it different in that it's based on research that she did, um, But also there are no sort of universal killing signs like there are um, in, say, the Old Farmer's Almanac um, or related systems. And so essentially each sign is designated as either a flower, a root, a fruit, or a leaf uh, sign. Sorry, each of the signs has one of those designations. And also that, that calendar and almanac is more astronomical. So the time that is in each of the signs varies according to the size of the constellation um, in that system. So it's a little bit, a little bit different in that way. Um, But certainly even folks that don't follow specifically the biodynamic um, calendar and almanac, um, you know, there are ties, the idea of, um, you know, of these almanacs goes back um, pretty darn far to, you know, original settlers coming, you know, coming over across the Atlantic and mm-hmm. um, landing here, you know, they, they brought almanacs with them for sure. So, um, you know, whether their heritage was uh, Irish or German or, you know, wherever they were coming from, um, many families um, brought almanacs with them. Mm-hmm. Or their learned traditions. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we should also note here that it's not just about, even though we call it planting by the signs or planting by the moon is another way it's referred to. It's not just the planting, but the other aspects of agriculture too. So the harvesting goes by the signs, the rendering of meat goes by the signs. Are there any other traditions that go by the signs? Yeah, there's, um, there are a lot of them. And so in the, um, there's a chapter called Beyond Planting that goes into um, some of those ones. You mentioned things like um, when to do fencing. So um, the idea there, and it 
uh, in older references, they'll also talk about digging graves. Um, and essentially, depending on which half of the moon's phase you're in. So if you're in um, sort of the growing uh, side of the moon or between the new and the full moon, um, sort of that waxing um, period, it's thought that you will have um, a lot of dirt left over and uh, things won't pack down really well. Whereas on that other half of the moon, between the full moon and the new moon, um, you would things would pack down really well. The fence posts are not going to move. You might even need to find more dirt to fill in the hole. Um, whereas, yeah, it would be sort of opposite on the other side. And so you can see how that also... Um, you know, with grave digging, it's the same kind of idea. Spreading gravel is another one that uh, corresponds to those two halves of the moon's phase where if it's in that um, light moon, the gravel will stay on top of the, uh, you know, of the soil and the earth where you spread it. But on the, on that other half, it'll get sort of sucked down <laughs> um, and won't last as long. Um yeah, you mentioned butchering. People will also um, think about medical procedures, you know, dental work or um, surgeries and that sort of thing. So that body part name association of the signs, um, the, the general idea is that there is more blood flow to those parts of the body when the sign is in that one. And so if you're getting medical work done, you want the sign to be away from that uh, part of the body in general. So like dental work, you would definitely not want the sign to be in the head or Aries. Um, you would want it to be well, well away from that part of the body. Um, and that came up in, in multiple uh, interviews that I did. You know, people had stories of either them or somebody that they knew who did it either in the the wrong sign and had a bad experience or, you know, did it in a right sign where it was farther away and they healed fine and it was, you know, it all worked out. So fascinating, but I could see that a dentist might want to take his vacation during that airy sign. Cause who, who would, who would book their appointments during that? That would be crazy. Yeah. Um, so a lot of this, you know, can sound a lot of, you know, Hmm, is this a magic system? Is this just folk traditions where, you know, is any of this true? Um, and I know you have a scientific background. So what are, or, or if any, the scientific studies that might support some of these practices? Yeah, um, it's a good question. And I will preface, um, I'll preface my answer by saying that I suspect that there may be some stuff out there that is, you know, that is not accessible to me. In other words, that's not been translated to English, right? Um, but sort of from the the work, from from the the digging that I have done, um, there are a couple, two in particular. There's one chapter of a book, and then there's one scientific paper that are about sap flow in trees. Um, during one of them is sort of during tides right which is of course um due to the moon and its um its proximity to the earth right two times a day and essentially um sort of the gravitational bulge that it um causes on oceans but at least part of the idea with planting by the signs is that the moon has an impact on water regardless of how small the quantity is right it's just that we can only see it with tides but anyway so one of the studies looked at sap flow um with the tides and found so they inserted probes into um, a number of trees and looked at sap flow and they found um a correlation essentially of sap flow with the tides and then another one was um sap flow and a solar eclipse so not not sort of um not exactly the same um but uh but related and they you know found a strong correlation there um i think that those were both uh tr i know that both of those were translated from german 
and then the other research that has been done is that uh, large body of work by Mar um, Mariah Thune that I mentioned earlier, T-H-U-N, if anybody wants to look up. Um, and she has published quite a bit of that. And then her family has continued that work. So her son and now her grandchildren actually um, are continuing the research that's done there. Um the caveat that I give there, because, you know, if you're asking about scientific work, is that she and her family have looked at a, a huge variety of different factors to establish the biodynamic um, calendar. But because they've looked at a, a huge number of factors, so for instance, what sign you collect the manure under to make the compost and mm -hmm. then what sign you then spread that compost under that was made that was made for manure collected under different signs um you know there's not there's not necessarily replication and error bars on the you know the bar graphs of things because you know it's not the statistics and the and the sort of statistical testing of it is not there because they looked at a, a you know just a huge variety of different factors and it would be really unwieldy if they you know had made sure that they had four plots replicated for every treatment that they had right mm -hmm. so um so that's kind of the tough um the tough thing scientifically it's really compelling and interesting uh, to me to look at the graphs of you know nutrient content of oil that is harvested under different signs and um, you know, all these different things that, that they look at. Um, it's quite interesting and compelling, or even, you know, a picture of carrots that were harvested under different signs, you know, from the same, they were planted from the same seed, you know, but then they were harvested and they, they look quite different. Um, you know, some of them being quite sort of forked and branched, whereas the one, you know, the ones that are from the root signs in that system, are you know your nice thick long um carrot that that most of us think about so so yeah that's a little bit about what exists um you know but it's not it's not real extensive um you know the research on it and certainly some people have asked me if i would want to do that you know like well well maybe that's the next step is for you to scientifically test this um and I've just sort of said like, nah, I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would really want to do that. I mean, um, you know, I also think part of the reason that it hasn't been done is because, you know, when you're varying things in time, then you're varying things, especially if it's like a field study, you're varying weather conditions. So, I mean, all those different things that we were talking about earlier, if, you know, you're, those are those are variables that you can't exactly control. And, um, and so I think that's part of why it hasn't been done. Um, I also would not be the, I wouldn't want to be the person that tried it and found there's nothing to it. Um, just because I think it's, you know, it's so cool and interesting and I really respect everybody, um, you know, that I talk to and that does it. Um, and I'm starting to do it much more in my garden. You know? mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I don't, even if part of it is um, the planning that comes with it or just the sort of hope and things getting better that comes from looking at the calendar and seeing that there's a, a good sign coming, you know, in a week or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, I think all of that is really interesting and maybe that's part of it. And I would hate to, um, yeah, to try to discredit it or anything, um, mm -hmm. you know, by by trying to, to look at the, the scientific um, aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And I could see that your book could be a jumping off point for somebody who wants to do that, um, who might take some of these traditions and say, try to break them down scientifically. But I just think there hasn't been much devoted to it, except for, you know, some of the studies in Germany that you cite. And the only other thing we can take from it is, if these traditions have been passed down for hundreds, maybe sometimes thousands of years, then there has to be something to it. And as you said, like the density of the soil um, because of the moisture and the tides and the moon movement, um, that could obviously affect how deep a root goes, 
how easy it is to dig at that point, mm -hmm. how easily the seed will germinate is even probably dependent on that. So I'm not sure about the astrological signs part, but for sure <laughs> the moon's influence we can say is a fact in gardening. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those stories and those traditions. Do you have a, a favorite practice that you've taken on because of the book or some of the interviews that you have done? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. And there's so, um, yeah, there are so many different practices that came up more than once um, that sort of stick out in my mind. And I think... Um, you know, kind of what I, what I am thinking about is, is largely influenced by what, what I'm doing in the garden and what's happening. And this is the first year that I've ever grown uh, potatoes, like Irish potatoes. Um, and it's mainly just because I, I went to give a, a book talk actually um, at a, at Pine Mountain Settlement School and they were, it was their grow Appalachia seed giveaway day and they had extra um, seed potatoes. And so I was like, Oh, okay, I'll take some and I'll, I'll grow potatoes. Um, but that's one where, you know, I definitely wanted to both plant them and also harvest them under, under the good signs just because they had come up in multiple interviews. And so, um, you know, that's one that I'm looking at this year. Um, and yeah, sort of is fresh in my mind right now. Um, just because I did dig, um, I dug some, some potatoes. Um, yes. Well, two days ago, uh, I dug sort of one, one of the two that I'm growing, uh, because I wanted that space. And also, um, it seemed, it seemed kind of like it was time for them. And I meant I, dug them on not the, it was not the fourth quarter, but it was barely into the third quarter. And I'm, um, I'm not planning to keep, you know, to keep those and store them for a really long time. So um, it should be fine. But anyway, I'm thinking about those things. Um, and yeah, thinking about multiple other ones, it certainly is much more at the top, you know, it's on top of my mind as I'm, as I'm doing gardening activities. But there's also things that, um, that I do when I can, you know, I'm not, um, my my schedule is very nice in that right now it's summer um, and I teach college. So, um, you know, I have some time, but I also, you know, there's other things going on in my life. I can't, um, I can't always hit things at exactly the right time that I would like to. And we weeding, for instance, is one that ideally I would be doing it when it's a killing sign. Um, but, you know, I've, I recognize that I can't necessarily plan for that. And if I see weeding that needs to be done, I just, I have to do it when I, when I see it and when I can. So, yeah, um, I was going to bring that up about, we have complicated modern lives, <laughs> not that it wasn't complicated in the past, but even more layers of complication now. And then you have the weather. So the gardeners have to contend with, well, I can't plant today because it's storming or, you know, it's uh, windy or whatever is happening outside. And then we are adding another layer of this yep. of planting by the moon or planting by the signs. Um, so that's a great question of who will direct us and let us know, okay, now is a good time to do that. What's a great source for us to consult? Yeah. So um, there are a number of different farmers almanacs. Most people are probably uh, familiar with the old farmer's almanac, which has kind of a yellow cover and looks pretty similar every year. It's kind of the most widely available one. Um, and it has in it, um, a best, a best days table, which is based on the moon's astrological, um, place or sign and it lists all sorts of different things um some of which we talked about before and some of which we haven't so when you asked about like what people use the signs for i mean it's pretty it's pretty uh interesting and wide-ranging i'm just opening um up the old farmer's almanac on, on their best days table they have like when you should there's a lot that have to do with hair which is interesting like mm -hmm. when you should color your hair, perm your hair, uh, cut, cut it to encourage growth or cut it to discourage growth. Anyway, there's lots of different things. Um, 
related to gardening more, there are um, when you should can pickle or make sauerkraut, um, you know, when you should harvest above ground crops or plant above ground crops or below ground crops in the opposite direction, etc. Um, but yeah, this is a source, it's a source that you can look at, but essentially you turn to that best days table to get that information. Um, or you can also seek out a a calendar uh, that provides that information in it. Um, there's there's one calendar that I often recommend to people that are just starting in this, just because it's really straightforward, has um, the phase of the moon and the moon sign, and then it also provides right there on the calendar what is recommended um, for that time. Um, and so that one is called gardening by the moon and, uh, people can look it up and it's, it's easily available. You just have to pick your, your time zone, um, and your, your growing zone essentially. Um, and you may have to adjust time a little bit, but, uh, that's a good one to look at for that. But it, it does, as you said, you know, it, it limits, it adds another layer, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of, if you really strictly try to follow it, um, then it does limit things a little bit. You know, some people that I interviewed, um, Jane Post, for instance, she said she, she couldn't really be strict about it um, until she retired, you know, and was able to plan a little bit more, you know, and have the time to sort of look at it. Um, the one that she uses, which people could also look up, is called the Llewellyn's Moon Sign Book. Um, and it is one that has sort of weekly tables and it does the kind of cheat sheet thing where it tells you the sign and then also tells you the activity right next to it in each week, um, what would be recommended under that. Hmm. Those are great sources. Thank you. And yeah, I was thinking also about how um, you could do it with one gardener following this in the same year with the same uh, weather in a garden plot right next to somebody else, you know, could be a semi-scientific way of doing it, but yeah, it's going to be hard. <laughs> <laughs> to, to figure that out. Yeah. And it is interesting that, um, you know, multiple people that I interviewed and also um, there's a, there's a great book called Planetary Planting uh, written by Louise Riot. Um, it came out in the seventies and in both that book and then with people that I interviewed, you know, those folks that are really committed to this and do it um, will sometimes be out planting things when the ground would seem too wet, for instance, to most of us, right? Like most of us would say, oh, it's muddy out. I'm not going to get in it. But mm -hmm. people, you know, people who really, um, who really believe in this, they will sometimes be out when it's super muddy or, um, you know, they might be out when it seems like, you know, it's too dry or whatever, you know, when the rest of us would say the weather doesn't seem <laughs> ideal for doing things, um, you know, if it's a good sign and especially if they've looked at the calendar and they see that it's going to be, you know, like if it's in one of those uh, times in the moon phase where things are shifting between those two halves, then it can be a full two weeks, you know, before you're back into a favorable sign. And so, you know, if that's the situation, you're like, okay, well, today is the last day for the, you know, the next two weeks to get my carrots in or whatever, you know, um, then they might be doing it even when it seems like it's not necessarily um, an ideal time. Hmm. Well, I kind of think this is good for those procrastinators amongst us who I'm counting myself in because <laughs> it will light a fire under your butt and make you do it. Um, or it's bad because it gives you excuses not to do things. And what I'm looking at particularly is the Leo or, or heart sign, which is considered a major killing season. So I was reading that section where, but that's a great time to kill pests. Um, it's also a great time for cultivating, um, but it's a horrible time for pruning. So that if you prune, say, a fruit tree, you might kill the fruit tree by pruning it during that sign. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's very true that it's, um, yeah, I have heard, I heard one person in particular tell me one time when I gave a talk that, um, that he thought his mom and her friends uh, just used following the signs as an excuse to stay out of the garden when they didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> 
Exactly. I was like, hmm, that, this is not a good sign. But then you could look at the chart and you know that it's true or not, whether they're they're uh, just using it as excuse or not. But certainly, certainly it does bring some order to things and gives you a guide and some type of planting calendar. If you're not a planner, if you're not somebody who's going to chart out and mark on your um physical calendar or set an alarm on your phone you can forget like you can forget that oh I just totally missed the time to plant my okra so in that way the season is good so um is there any story in the book that particularly touched you emotionally yeah that's a good question I mean I of course I sort of my mind automatically jumps um to some of the people who have passed away um Mm since I interviewed them. Um, but there, there are a number that sort of, um, go through my head. Um, I guess as a little bit of a generality, um, the two, I, I was able to interview two World War II veterans, um, and both of them have passed away since. Um, but just hearing from both of them about how much, you know, agriculture and, um, farming changed during their lifetimes was, was just pretty phenomenal. I mean, um, you know, one of them, uh, spent a lot of time, spent probably 20 minutes of our interview sort of going over. And it was because one of his, uh, great grandchildren had had a school project, uh, recently and had asked him about what all corn could be used for. And so, um, this was Glenn Brown and he talked, you know, he was sort of recalling all the things that he had told his, his great grandson about what you could do with corn. And so he just went on and on and on. And it's, you know, of course this was before, you know, nobody even knew what sweet corn was, right? Like that is, that's of course a relatively new um, thing, but, but, you know, he went all the way back to when they were clearing forested land, you know, to be able to farm. Um, And, and then of course went through all the different things that corn were used for. Um, And then the other World War II that um, Jess Clarkson Jr., he talked about when he got back from the war going to uh, farm school, which was essentially sort of the precursor to the, um, to extension, you know, to the extension service that we have now. And um, he went to that and then talked about, essentially fertilizers coming under use. And, you know, these are things that I have talked to my students about in my class and certainly knew, you know, the increases that happened in corn yields with hybrids and, you know, um, the use of, of fertilizers that, uh, that happened. Um, you know, I've, I've talked about all those things, but just to sort of hear personal stories of how these people were impacted and, um, you know, and just how very different, um, things are today, um, from, you know, when they were young, uh, was, was pretty, pretty interesting and and powerful. And, um, I, I think a lot about how different many people are living today than people used to have to. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't necessarily like, everybody wanted to all the time be, um, you know, having to raise the food that they were going to eat, but that's what everybody had to do. And now we're in a world where people can be entirely removed from the natural world, like, you know, give absolutely no thought to where their food comes from or, um, you know, or even look up at the sky and think about what's happening with the moon and, uh, it's just a very, very different uh, situation now. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's what comes to mind, even though not, not exactly an answer to your question, perhaps. But No, but that's so very true. And you're right that, you know, a lot of people are completely disconnected to the natural world. So all of this would be a completely foreign language to them. So almost teaching gardening by planting by the signs could be a system that would reintroduce them to all of those. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be a lovely thing to come out of it for sure. 
how can our listeners contact you if they want to find out more information? If they happen to be on Facebook, I have a page uh, for the book called Sewn in the Stars, so they can look that up, and that's where I've got information about different events and things like that. Um, and they can also feel free to email me at sewninthestars at gmail.com. Um, those are, are two good ways uh, to get a hold of me. Great. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Lotus Plant Profile Lotus Nilumbo species is an aquatic plant that is native to Asia, Australia, and the Americas. It is hardy to USDA zones 5 to 10. The lotus plant is known for its large, tropical-looking leaves and beautiful layered flowers. Its various parts are edible, and it is a sacred symbol of purity and rebirth in Eastern cultures. It needs to be placed in full sun to bloom, and appreciates an occasional fertilizer tab placed in the soil by its roots. When planting a bare root lotus rhizome, fill a pot with clay soil, place the rhizome in, and make sure the growing tips are slightly above the soil line. Submerge the pot about 12 to 18 inches below the surface of the water. Lotus plants are generally large and can quickly spread to take over a small water garden, so it's best to give them their own separate space to grow in. They can be planted in old bathtubs, stock tanks, or animal troughs. You can also purchase miniature lotus varieties that grow in small tabletop bowls or other decorative watertight containers. The lotus flowers open in the morning and close by mid-afternoon. Each flower typically blooms for two to three days. After the petals drop, a beautiful green seed pod is revealed, which then dries on the stalk and can be collected to propagate additional plants or for craft use. In our mid-Atlantic region, lotus can be safely wintered outdoors but the rhizome should never be left out to freeze entirely or it will die. So for colder regions, you will need to give it extra protection or bring it indoors. Lotus, you can grow that. new in the garden this week? Well, over at the community garden, we've established a little pollinator garden strip just outside the deer fence, which includes beautifully blooming borage and the common milkweed. Over at my home pollinator garden strip, the monarda and butterfly weed are blooming profusely. In local gardening events, from July 15th to the 22nd, you can attend the 2023 Lotus and Water Lily Festival at Kenilworth Aquatic Gardens in Washington, D.C. Find out details about the daily schedule of events at kenaqgardens.org. And you don't have to wait for the festival. The Lotus and Water Lilies are in bloom now and will be in bloom for several weeks after the festival. So visit anytime. They're open daily from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Another upcoming local event you might want to attend is at Tudor Place in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. That's the next installment in the Art in the Garden series on August 12th from 9.30 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. The fee for that is $55 for non-members, $45 for members of Tudor Place. You can register at tutorplace.org. All materials will be provided and you are going to be out in the garden doing color pencil sketching workshops and the summer flora incorporating the brilliant hues and using various techniques for your own unique art creation. Two dates to hold in your calendar for later the season is the DC State Fair on September 10th that will take place this year at Franklin Park in downtown Washington, D.C. 
and the American Hort Society's 50th gala will be on Saturday, September 23rd at River Farm in Alexandria, Virginia. Happy gardening! Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book, Ground Cover Revolution, by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional, everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen and Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. This is The Last Word on Weeds, Get to Know the Tasty Ones, by Ellen Zakos at BackyardForager.com. Are you going to laugh at me if I tell you I love to eat weeds? And that's weeds plural. I'm not talking about weed cannabis, which is a wonderful plant, but a completely different subject. I'm talking about the weeds that most people want to eliminate from their lawns and gardens, like burdock and dandelions and mugwort and chickweed, maybe even mallow, pokeweed, and purslane. And if you are spending time and money and energy getting rid of these weeds, then you are missing a real opportunity. In my garden, I let these weeds live. I cultivate these weeds because if I am getting ready to make dinner and I realize I haven't gone to the grocery store, I can walk out my front door. I can go over to that dandelion plant or that dock plant or that mallow plant, depending on where we are in the growing season. I can pick some leaves. I can go inside and I can make a delicious vegetable for supper. These are all plants that have been considered and even planted as vegetables around the globe in different centuries, and we have lost that knowledge. For example, in Greece, dandelions are a very popular vegetable to use, especially in spring and fall, when their foliage is at its most tender and delicious. Later in the season, it can get bitter. Mugwort is used in a lot of different Japanese dishes. If you've ever eaten green mochi, that green color comes from mugwort. And in Germany, it's often paired with fatty meats like goose or duck. Pokeweed has been a traditional vegetable in the southern United States for centuries. And mallow is harvested in the Middle East and used in lots of different casseroles as a wonderful green. 
I've even taken purslane, put it in a blender with some tequila, and come up with a very delicious and beautifully emerald green take on the traditional margarita. One person's weed is another person's vegetable. So the next time you're thinking about going out there and spraying your dandelions or digging them up, I encourage you instead to pick a leaf, go inside, add it to your salad, cook it up in a stir fry, and see if you like that flavor. Because if you do, you are about to enter a whole new world of delicious, free food. And can I underline free? Who doesn't like the idea of going out and picking your vegetables from a place where you didn't plant it, you spent no time cultivating that plant, you spent no money buying seed, fertilizing that plant. What's more appealing than delicious free food? And if you want recipes or identification tips on how to be sure you've got the right plant because that is very important, take a look at my website, backyardforager.com, and feel free to email me with your questions, ez at backyardforager.com. I hope you'll start eating some of your weeds. This has been The Last Word on Weeds, Get to Know the Tasty Ones, by Ellen Zakos at backyardforager.com. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.